Westmount, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Galatians. Your Bible, the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We are, of course, in the final two chapters of this study. And we begin this fifth chapter today. And we will begin our time this morning by reading the section of Scripture that we'll be in over the next couple of weeks to begin chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Galatians 5, 1 through 15. Let me just read the passage as we set the table, set our hearts right before we dive in today. Galatians 5, chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That's God's word. You know, Westmount, we begin this morning with our question that should resonate for those of you that have been around here for the past few days and this week. What is freedom? You see freedom has bookended that passage. What is freedom? That really has been, beloved, our question of the week, has it not? I asked you that on Friday with the update to set the table for this weekend, but even more, David did an excellent job this week of teaching us on what true freedom is. And remember Wednesday night, David took us through freedom to serve. And even as David did that, I was thinking, and for many of us, realized freedom is not what we think it is. Freedom's not what we think it is. And this morning, I just simply want to pick up that baton from Wednesday night. That's all I endeavor to do as we're cued in God's word, pick up that baton on our conceptions of freedom. As we just read, freedom as a theme bookends this passage. You see it at the beginning and you see it at the end. This passage that we've arrived at in Galatians. 
Now, freedom, now think with me as we begin this morning, freedom and more of it, more freedom, is something that you're told that you need more of all the time. Is that not true? You are told all the time from many inputs, all that you need is more freedom. That's what you need. In fact, social authorities tell us this all the time. The problem is you're restricted and what you need to be is free. You know this message. What humanity needs, what will solve all of humanity's problems is this. Freedom and more freedom. That's what we need. Now listen to me. That sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, truly, that will sell a lot of things. And not only does it sound good, it looks good, doesn't it? Those of us that are following what's going on south of the border, those primaries and rallies, it looks great. And there's a lot of hands in the air when we're told we need more freedom. It looks good. It sounds good. Freedom. Just give us more freedom because that's what we need. Well, Let's take a moment, Westmount, and pause before we get into this text and just consider. Let's just put that to the test. Just a simple survey this morning. That's all. Let's see how more freedom has been going for us. What about the demands for freedom in marriage? Starting in the 1960s, of course, there was the call for what? No-fault divorce. Don't let me give you a reason why I want out. I want the freedom to just say I want out. I just want out of this marriage. I want freedom. That was then. What about today? The freedom to define marriage however we want. It doesn't matter. Man, man, woman, woman, insert whatever pieces. Give me the freedom to just define marriage the way I want to. Don't restrict me. And the result of all that freedom, beloved, you know this is true, we now have nothing that resembles marriage at all. Society's demand for freedom in marriage is actually killing it. It's killing it. What about the demands for freedom of rights? And listen, for lack of a better term, whatever rights are these days, for lack of a better term, freedom of rights. Like in the state of Colorado, just by one case sample, that demanded, they demanded the right to legalize cannabis. We have a right to cannabis. Give it to us. So in 2012, they did just that. They legalized marijuana. They made it a freedom. And the result of all that freedom, let me just give you a few. There is a litany of stats I could give you, but let me just give you these few. Just five years later, reported by their own, the most liberal newspaper in Denver reported this just five years after they legalized cannabis. In just five years, Colorado's homeless rate went from one of the lowest in the United States to one of the highest. In just five years, fatal auto collisions doubled with the testing of positive for marijuana. In just five years, marijuana use, hear this parents, marijuana use in schools increased 45%. That's children using pot. Five years. It would appear that society's demand for freedom of rights is killing the society. What about the demands for freedom over our bodies? That's what we need, right? Freedom over my body. I just need freedom for my own body. Freedom of choice. Freedom to take the life of the baby that is in the womb. And in the name of freedom, 
Since 1969, and these are underestimates, since 1969 in this country alone, over 3 million murdered babies in the name of freedom. Freedom of gender. You don't own me. You don't own me. You can't define who I am. Freedom to be whatever gender, if any gender, I choose. And the result of that freedom, the blissful liberation of our bodies, know the bondage of subjecting our bodies to a gender that is not natural. Now listen, last year, by just one physician, last year was the first time the reported cases of reverse transgender surgery outpaced those of initially asking it. In other words, people that said, oh my God, what have I done? I am in bondage to my body. Take it away. Hear what I'm saying, and the stats show those cases are now outstripping those that initially asked for it. People are saying, I need to go back to the way God made me. Society's demand for body freedom, listen, is not only killing us, but it's enslaving us. Do you see that? It's enslaving us. In the name of freedom, we're enslaved. And you say today freedom's enslaving us? I thought freedom freed us. It progressed us. It bettered us, say the politicians. And yes, beloved, that's what you're being told. And the so-called freedoms pile up. So what's the problem? What's the problem? Well, church, I want to submit something to you this morning, if you will bear with me in the text. The problem is not what we are free from. The problem is not what we're free from spouses or government or biology, although that's another issue. I mean, I could do a sermon on that, and Romans 1 tells you all you need to know about that, our desire to be free from all that. No, the problem is not what we're free from. The problem is what we're free onto. You hear me? The problem is what we're free unto. And ultimately, in every case, listen, freedom defined as what? What is freedom? Freedom defined as this, the freedom to your own choices. That's freedom. Let me choose because I know what's best for myself. In fact, I want you to consider the definition of the language authorities today. i just give you a very a vanilla definition here from the authorities around us. Freedom is, listen, I quote, The power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. That's freedom defined today. So listen carefully. So freedom, freedom to do as we want. Our choice. Without restraint. Without hindrance. Beloved, I submit to you, that's not freedom. That's frightening. That's frightening. I just want you to sit for a moment and map the Bible to that. If we could do whatever we want without restraint, Romans 1 is one thing. You got a whole book of Judges that tells you all you need to know what we do without restraint. You got a city like Sodom, and on and on it goes. That's what we do with freedom. We know, beloved, each one of us that are in Christ, even though left to our own desires, take the shackles off of me. Take the shackles off of us. Let us do what we really deep down want to do and we're in a whole lot of trouble. Thankfully, that is not true freedom. What is then freedom? What is freedom? Well, we'll see it here today. In church, I can tell you 
like those examples that we looked at already, freedom is not what you think. Yes, misconceptions of freedom are not just a societal thing. This is where we're going, church. Freedom is all too often misunderstood, listen, in the walls of the church itself. And in doing this, people will go, I want you to look down at the book open in front of you, people will go to the chapters that we just finished, Galatians 3 and 4, in the church and say, let me tell you about freedom. We've referenced this in our study so far, that people have taken these chapters in the church and gone to all kinds of different places. The popularity abounds of Galatians 3 and 4, in particular for those espousing freedom. And yes, beloved Christian, it is true, that has been Paul's point, as he tackles the Judaizers, and here it is, tackles a false gospel in Galatia. Christians are no longer in bondage to the law. We are delivered, we are free, praise the Lord. And for those in the church misunderstanding freedom, they would look at Paul here and they say things like this, see, the law is expired. Look at Galatians 3.19, it's expired. He said, we were formerly enslaved, Galatians 4.8. In fact, Galatians 4.31, Paul says, we're children of the free woman. That's what we looked at last week. And in their excitement to be free, they go further and they say, we're not bound by any law at all. We're under grace. That's the era now. Grace is free. You've heard that. And likely you've seen that. Someone you know professing Christ, but living however they like. And then they announce something like this. It may not be right, but it's okay. Because of grace, God understands. I know you've heard that. Yes, such sentiments spring from what theologians call antinomianism. You say, wow, what is that? Antinomianism literally means anti-against nomianism law. Those that are just against the law. And you know them. The church is awash with them today. Theologically, it's one who denies that sanctification is the necessary fruit of justification. In other words, let me say it simply. They would say this, to be saved by Jesus doesn't mean you need to grow to be like Jesus. The antinomian says, I'm saved from the law, now don't hold me to a law. Now I trust, if you've been at Westmount for the past few years, that ruffles your feathers when you hear that and say, well, that's not biblical. Those sentiments make your radar go off, and I trust you think immediately of books, like First John. I mean, think about the book of First John. It says repeatedly, if you love Jesus, what? You will obey Jesus. If you love him, truly, you will obey him. You may think of chapters like James 2 that says, I will show you my faith by what? My works. That's how you'll know that I'm in Christ. Let me show you. And verses like the one near the end of this letter. Look at Galatians 6.2. This is in the book of Galatians. Look at this verse. Bear one another's burdens, and so what? Fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Amazing. So not only a law for the Christian now. You say, ah, that's Paul talking about law? 
Yes, yes. Not only a law with Christ's name attached to it, but look at it, a law that the verse says we're to fulfill, we're actually to do something with. This would be confounding to those that say we're not held to a law now. Church, we are indeed free from the Mosaic law, but that does not mean that we are not subject to any law, period. That is freedom as society defines it, right? Think about this, church, because we're awash in this. That's society's definition of freedom. Do whatever you want, no restraint, but it's not the way God defines it. Do you see that? It's something very different as we set the table today. And more than that, as we've looked at already, that would not really be true freedom. And you say, no. You say, what is that? The kind of law-free, unrestrained living, even for the Christian, is not really freedom at all. And what the free grace, it's okay movement fails to see is where such grace comes from and what motivates such grace to move at all. They're losing the fountainhead. They're losing the fountainhead. And that's the glory of God. That's why God's grace has appeared. It's for the glory of God. I think of chapters on liberty. Think about 1 Corinthians 10. Toward the end of that chapter, when they're talking about liberty, not everything is helpful, everything is lawful. But you know what he said? You know what Paul says when he wraps that point about liberty? He says, whatever you eat or drink, do all that you do to what? The glory of God. You know that there must be a limiter on that. Because not all things may be lawful, but not all things give glory to God. And you will say, but I'm free to do it. But does it give God glory? No. No, it doesn't at all, in fact. And somehow we get poisoned with this sentiment that we can do whatever we want. And and that we're now Christians free to live. Here it is against law. And however they please, however, that's not a glory. It's a shame. Beloved, it's a shame. It's like your son who's in prison and he did it again. And you go down to the bailiff's office and you have to make a decision to let him out. And you go, okay, he's going to be here in DMD. He's going to change. And, and you say to the bailiff, and you have to make that decision and you're going to get him out. And you don't only pay the bailiff for that one time. You pay him for everything he's ever done, everything he's doing now. And you say, you know what? I know he may sin again, but I'm going to send him out because he's going to be a changed man. And why do you liberate him? Do you liberate him, put everything on the line at such a cost so that he can continue to go and do those things again? No, you don't. No, you don't. In fact, if he went out and continued to do the same thing, after you liberated him for transgressions past, present, and future, it would be to the shame of the Father, would it not? Of course it would be. Listen, church, it doesn't work for you. Why in the world does it work that way for God? It doesn't. And here in Galatians, as Paul turns the bend on these final two chapters, he is going to address this very thing. Because it's a poison that's infected Galatia here. And it's looming in the background. And it's been hanging there as Paul has been working actively to teach on the true gospel. It's a feeling, a misunderstanding flowing from end of the law teaching. Beloved, we're prone to this. We are creatures of the pendulum. If you've been at Westmount, you know I use that term all the time. We love the pendulum. We don't know where the balance is. Too much law. I brought up an illegalist family, so now I'm free grace. And we just go back and forth and back and forth. And Paul is looking to put the pendulum right back where it needs to sit. 
a way of living, right, that glorifies God, that is free from the law but glorifies God, but it's not free to no law. Freedom, rightly taught here in Galatians. We'll see here today, Paul does not sign off this letter without making sure these things are clear. Freedom for the Christian does not mean you are simply free from Allah at all. No, freedom for the Christian does mean you have freedom in Christ. There it is. And Paul will take time in this passage to present five dimensions of this freedom. Each will challenge us. Westmount, I warn you, each of these are going to challenge us. They are going to take a convention that you're swimming in right now, and it's going to turn it on its head. But that's what God does, does he not? That is God. Let's look at the first one. Freedom's command. Look at verse 1. Freedom's command. I want you to think about popular freedom. Maybe go back to what we started with. Popular freedom today does not have a place for rules or instructions, does it? I want you to think about freedom. They, they actually don't coexist today in popular thinking. Someone thinks of freedom, and then they don't think of rules or instructions. In fact, what do they think of? Just the opposite. I remember, what, it was just maybe three, four years ago, I was a college student. No, not at all. But I remember going off to college, very much unsaved at the time, and let me tell you about something. When I was dropped off at my dorm, I was free. I was free, and you know why I was free? No rules. I don't have to listen to mom and dad anymore. I am free. And I mean, in one sense, in my depraved glory, I thought I was free. I could do whatever I want. And listen, the years that followed bore that out. Much of that tragedy unfolded at the beginning. But I was free. And that's that conception that society has today. Freedom means no rules. You know that, right? Freedom means no rules. And Again, we can give many other cases today. Freedom is not associated with instruction. Now, I want you to just keep that in mind. I press that point because you know that narrative. It's everywhere today. Look at verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Amazing. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That's the truth we've covered at length. Chapters 3 and 4, Christ has set us free from the bondage of the law. But that's not all it says. Look carefully. It doesn't just say, it doesn't just repeat the truth. What else does Paul say? Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, don't miss that. Paul in that verse gives us not only a truth, but what does he give you? A command. Perish the thought. In freedom... A command. In other words, he says, you are free, now listen to me and do this. Wow. That's illogical to many, right? Obedience in freedom. I I just can't put those together. Again, freedom turned upside down, but beloved, look at the word of God. It is freedom. And it demonstrates that maybe, just maybe this morning, we don't truly understand or have come to grips with what true freedom is. Paul says, Christ has set you free. Now stand firm. Do not go back again. There's a volitional aspect to freedom. Making a choice indeed, but a a choice that has very clear boundaries. 
And this was the point that Paul made repeatedly. Remember chapter 4? Look at chapter 4, verse 8. What was his point? Look at it. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And then remember this. But now that you have come to know God, so this is your stead in God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So he's saying there, how can you go back? This is the point, and this is the same idea here in chapter 5, verse 1. There was a formerly, when you were in slavery, right? We talked about that, but that's no, not you now. You are now Christ's. You are free by him. You're all in him. Why would you go back? But here it is, beloved, as we think about this point, misconceived freedom always is drawn back. Misconceived freedom always wants to go in a reverse direction. That's just so important. And listen, this is as old as Lot's wife. Do you remember Lot's wife? Free from Sodom. And what does she do? Look back. Look back. Because that's what you want to do. She couldn't help looking back. Just as Christian, we are still prone to today. From Look at those dates and seasons. Same passage here in chapter 4. Do you remember that? Verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. In other words, you want to go back to ritual. That's what you want to do in your freedom. It's just amazing. Right down to the elementary things. Right? He talks about those elementary principles. Listen, freedom, just a mask to return to slavery. I think again about my college days, and I don't want to throw every young person in the bucket with me, but... I think my college days exemplify the fact that, what did I do? Did I say, I'm now free to go adulting? No, I didn't. I mean, I was free to now be juvenile, right? No, but listen, we laugh because it's absolutely true, is it not? Freedom doesn't say, okay, I'm free to be responsible. I am free to get my life together. No, I'm free to sit on the couch, give me a video game, give me the chips, give me sloth. That's what I want. When you're free and when the shackles come off, it's dangerous. When the mice play is when the cat's away. Beloved, this is the point. Why would you go back now that you've been free? But that's what we do. Paul reminds the Galatians here and for us to freedom and praise God. Society doesn't like this, but freedom has its commands. Praise God it does. Praise God it does. Yes, that's counterintuitive to our modern mindsets, but it is timeless, ancient truth. Look at it in verse 1 again. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Just as it says, just very plainly. However, this type of freedom is not a freedom, as we've said, to move and, and go and do as we like. No, friends, this may not sound like freedom at first, but we understand this, right? On a lesser level, we live in a country, and we live in a free country, don't we? Praise the Lord that we live in a free country. But listen to me. Are you, citizen of Canada, able to do whatever you want in Canada? Well, no. And we don't want you to just go and do the things you want to do, right? Break laws and all of that. No, we have laws and civil society because that, here it is, dovetails and is part of freedom, is it not? To live in a, what do we say? A civilized society where anarchy doesn't run wild. 
that's part of freedom. And we miss this so often when we say, I just want to be free. We lose the fact that in freedom is command. In freedom is command. Not just because it's civil and it works at that level, but because God has designed it that way. 1 Corinthians 14, God is a God of, of order. And why does this make sense? And why is this necessary for freedom? Well, listen for us here in Canada, because a society left with no demands will soon not be a society at all. Is that not true? Left to no commands and no demands, it soon just won't be a society at all. I mean, you can argue all you want about, well, there's commands, you just won't be a society at all. And I mean, beloved, if it's true in civic affairs, how much more is it true in Christ's affairs? No, church, you've been set free in Christ. Look at the text, therefore, therefore, stand firm in Christ. That's the command. And we don't want to miss that. Again, many well-meaning do. And ironically, in their efforts to stand against the law, they become enslaved to it. The antinomian claims freedom. But isn't it funny? And I say this respectfully. They keep sinning the same way. The antinomian just keeps sinning the same way. It's all about them, and they're caught in a cycle, and they say, God understands, but they just keep on sinning and sinning in the same way. How do we then not make the same mistake? Well, friends, this really is it. Again, it's not what you're standing against. Antinomian's so obsessed with this, right? Not about law. It's not about what you're standing against, but look at verse 1. It's who you're standing firm in. That's the focus. How often, Westmount, are we more preoccupied with what we are not as Christians? You know what I'm talking about? We're so obsessed with what we're not. I am not a legalist. I am not a judge. I am not my brother's keeper. And on and on it goes. All the things that we're not. All the negatives. And I want to submit to you, it's as if we're trying to be as wide open as possible. Isn't that the funny thing? We're just not this, not that, not the other. All the while, just trying to be as wide open as possible. You know, our list of negations is often an attempt really at that, to be as inclusive as we can. Yet freedom in Christ is not about you and your stand against all negatives. Can I say that again? Freedom in Christ is not about your stand against a whole bunch of negatives. That can be legalism. That's not freedom in Christ. Beloved, freedom in Christ is about you standing firm in your one advantage. That's it. Freedom in Christ says, this is where I stand, not what I stand against. Freedom in Christ is all about your freedom to choose. Yes, to choose. But now as one who can actually choose. Remember when you were in slavery and bondage? It was just a false choice, really. Because you continued to choose for yourself. That's not really a choice at all, is it? But now you can choose legitimately. Freedom in Christ is all about your freedom to choose righteousness. This struck me years ago when I was saved. I actually now had a choice that I desired to choose what's right. All I knew was sin. But now when Christ saved me, I could choose righteousness. And I wanted to, and I did. I was free. I was free. Freedom in Christ is all about your freedom to choose as Christ did. This is staggering. You can make the same choice as Jesus Christ did. How in the world is that? Because you're free in him. That's why you can do it. Praise God. 
Freedom in Christ means that you are free to Christ. No longer a slave to self, but listen, Westmount, but a slave to Christ. That is freedom's command. Jesus Christ in him alone. And it is to that benefit, the Son of God, that character of freedom, we turn to next. Look at verse 2. Freedom's command and also freedom's character. Verse 2 says this. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. This is a warning. You look at the way that Paul has constructed that sentence. That's a warning from the apostle to his beloved Galatians. It's written in a way that tells us, like all warnings, they haven't accepted circumcision yet. Do you see that? He's saying, I'm telling you if you do. So there's a sense there where they haven't yet, but listen, they were on the cusp. And we know they're on the cusp because go and look at chapter 4, verse 10. They had adopted other bits of Jewish law. Do you remember the seasons and dates and years? So in a sense, they've got their toe in the water with Judaism, right? Okay, we're going to start doing this feast and that. They're building up, ramping up maybe to circumcision, and Paul's here to warn them. Paul says here, look at it again. He says, look, if you go this next step and accept circumcision... If you accept that sign of the old covenant as something that's necessary, if you, by that act, say that I do need something to complete and perfect my salvation, well then, Galatia, Westmount, all of us, and I pray this needs little explanation at this point, if all that's true on that acceptance, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. You see that? If that's what you're doing. Really? One might protest today and say, really? I mean, it's just circumcision. It's only circumcision. Come on. Here it is. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. And in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it at all. For health reasons, right? People get circumcised. For family reasons. Maybe just wanting to pass it on and all of these great things. There's nothing wrong with circumcision. All of that is more than okay. But those normal reasons are not the point here. Circumcision for those reasons, and here it is, that have nothing to do with one stand before God. Do you see that? Circumcision, I would actually submit to you for any other reason, but I need this to be right with God. However, for the Galatians here, circumcision was presented as exactly that, to be right with God. Let me remind you of the Judaizers' cry. This is from Acts 15.1. Do you remember? This is what they were saying. This is the false gospel they were spreading. Acts 15.1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, and here it is bluntly, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Acts 15.1. Now listen, for those reasons, if that's your motivation for getting circumcised as an act to make you right before God, Circumcision is an attempt to justify oneself in God's sight. Well, listen, that is not okay. Not for the gospel, that is not okay. Circumcision, and we would say today, as well as any act or work done in the attempt to earn favor with God. You see that? It doesn't have to be circumcision. Any act that you do where you feel like you're earning credit with God. That's what we're talking about here. 
to secure salvation, to make one right with him. Any act that's done with that attitude and has that character is not compatible with Jesus Christ. And why is that? Well, Paul reminds us of another truth. Look at verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, and here it is, listen carefully, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So it is not just circumcision. It's not a matter of just this one thing, right? If you accept circumcision or any work of the law to be justified, to be right with God, then you are obligated to accept all of it. So saying, okay, well, I'll accept that season, that date, that circumcision. Well, the law itself says, well, then you need to accept all of it. That is every last jot and every last tittle. And remember, that means falling short. What have we looked at in Galatians? You fall short in just one piece, one iota of the law, even just one, means you break what? The whole thing. You break the whole law. I'll just remind you of James 2.10. I know we've covered this already, but it's so important. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Now consider that and consider the warning here. In essence, Paul is saying, Galatians, is that what you want? You have been freed from that bondage of not being able to keep the whole law, and now you want to come back under it? Remember what Paul said when he planted those churches in Galatia? Remember what he said, Acts 13, verse 39. This is what he was saying. This is one of his first sermons, by the way, in Galatia. Remember he said this, by Christ, Acts 13, 39, By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, he tells the Galatians, you believe in Christ and you'll be set free, not only from the Mosaic law, but did you hear what he said? From something you can't free yourself from. So that means, yes, no matter how well-meaning someone is, how perfect they may seem, they cannot fulfill all of the law. And that's Paul's point here. Christ has already freed you from that bondage. Christ has already come and done, Galatian, what you can't. Christ has already fulfilled all of the law. And listen, all of it is fulfilled in Christ. You have all that advantage, all that benefit in the Son of God. And now he is your freedom. Christ is your joy. And you desire to turn back and say, no, 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 no. He's the perfect one. I have something to add, and I'm going to go under the law. It's astounding. Now, listen, we need to remind ourselves that this is not just a Galatian issue. This is the great trouble 2,000 years later, is it not, reading Scripture? That we can think, oh, those Galatians, just so foolish. Oh, those foolish Galatians. I mean, really? We're so above that two millennia later. Beloved, listen, I'm with you driving the bus. There is nothing new under the sun. This text is living and breathing and active and cutting every joint and sinew in you. To say, wow, that is me. We are not only applicable here. We are so prone to this. I was reading an article that came across my way from Ed Moore this week. And he was talking about works-based salvation. As I was reading it, I was like, yes, that that is works-based salvation. But it struck me that it also applies to works-based sanctification, right? Trying to perfect us. I just want to read three of them here. Just bear with me, but tell me if this resonates with you. These attempts to justify ourselves before God. 
I'm sure none of this is true for any of us in here, but maybe you just hear it and you'll tweak something. He says this. He gives three of them. He says, it may not be the work of circumcision, but the work of philanthropy. Philanthropy is just that giving, right? You get those philanthropists that just like to give money, right? And it, and it is always sounds very noble when someone's just giving away money. He says this, I'm going to give money. This is the one who's trusting in their works of giving. I'm going to contribute. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to see someone in need, and I'm going to meet that need. I'm going to make charitable gifts, and as I give, I really can't imagine that in the final day, the Almighty would damn me. After all, look at the money I've given. That's works-based salvation, and beloved, it can be true for your giving even today. He says, two, not the work of circumcision, but what about the work of service? He says, I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to pitch in. I'm going to give my time. I'm going to use my skill and expertise. I'm going to get my hands dirty for Jesus. I'm going to work. I'm going to do good. I'm going to serve, whether it's shoveling my neighbor's walk or going to a food pantry. And on Judgment Day, I just can't imagine that God would watch a video of my life, and by the way, me serving on Thanksgiving Day with the homeless, and still damn me to hell. That's works-based service. And we can still do it today when we serve thinking it earned something with God. And what about this third one? Not the work of circumcision, but the work of ritual. We talked about this in Galatians. Works-based ritual. Confession. Confirmation. Communion. Baptism. Prayers, beads, candles, church attendance, whatever. Some sort of a ceremony is going to get me right with God. Three flavors for the non-Christian that is the thinking of works, but for us Christian, this is far more insidious, is it not? Far more subtle. All of that supplemental work we offer up as if it makes us right and complete with God. But again, the problem with that work, as attractive as those works are, is that if you pursue that kind of freedom with that kind of character, then listen, you need to do it all. Philanthropy sounds good in and of itself, and here's the worldly problem. If you're going to pursue God that way, you've got to do the whole lot. There's a whole bunch of morality you've got to follow as well. Serving may be great, and you can devote all your time to serving and be like, God can't possibly damn, but you know you've got to do all of it. You've got to do all of it. And ritual sounds great. Just make sure I'm at church on Sunday. That's it. And, and make sure I'm seen. I want to make sure I'm seen in church. But you've got to do all of it. You've got to do all of it. You've got to fulfill the law perfectly. And this is the point. Give, serve, ceremony, all of it to earn something with God. And the law demands perfection. Now, if the impossibility of that wasn't enough to shock us back to orthodoxy then certainly Paul's next statement should. Look at verse 4 with me. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You accept circumcision, he says. You try to earn anything at all by works with God, and God's word says you are severed from Christ. That means to be cut off from him. Yes, severed from Christ in your attempts, and look at it, to justify yourself by the law. And that's right, church, there is no overlap. Right? These two things don't kind of overlap tracks and, and shores. No, works in Christ are mutually exclusive. 
You're fully in one of two camps. And we, of course, have covered that already, but let me at least remind why. Because any iota of work, even offered as a compliment, as a supplement, as an addition, is like saying this. Let me put it bluntly this morning. When you do that and you have this kind of heart, it's like saying, Christ, thank you, but your work is not enough. Thank you, Christ. I love you, Jesus. But there's something missing in what you did. Let me just finish that up for you, Jesus. That's what we're saying when we supplement. We say, Christ, you are not sufficient. And if that is what you think, which your actions and motivations would reveal you do, then it demonstrates you've not really accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Because receiving Christ means you receive him alone. Alone. Forsaking all else, including your works. And if you've not really received Christ, truly, then heed this at the end of verse 4. Look at it with me. You have fallen away from grace. Now that's an explosive statement, is it not? Many have debated what's going on here. But we want to be clear with one thing this morning, crystal clear. Let's be clear with one thing that statement is not saying. Paul is not warning the Galatians that they can lose their salvation. Let's be clear. And why do we say that? Because the Bible is quite clear that you cannot lose your salvation. The Bible is quite clear that once saved, always saved. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, Romans 8, 1 John, on and on and on it goes. No, this warning is saying nothing more than the obvious truth of those that trust in self, trust in law, trust in works to be made right with God. That if you're that one, if that is you... That one, such ones, know nothing of the character of God and his grace. Amen. They are outside of that grace. They have fallen away. And church, listen to me. Being shut out of God's grace is not freedom. It's not freedom at all. Many will tell you that today. The proud atheist says, I don't want any of God because I'm free. And we lament their condition. Being shut out of God is not freedom. Nor is striving for favor with God because of our work, circumcision or otherwise. Again, that is not standing firm in Christ. That's a toe in the water and a toe on the sand. Freedom in Christ is not being okay with Christ like the Judaizers, then trusting in our works and the fulfillment of our own hands for righteousness. No, No, the character of our freedom Christian has its hope in something sure. Look at verse 5. Something sure. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Don't miss this. Look again at it. Verse 5. For through our works, does it say? Does it say through our works? No. For through the Spirit, and look at this, by faith, look at that instrument, Our advantage is what? We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. When we rely on our works, our efforts for righteousness, our hope is only as strong as what? I ask you, when we rely on our efforts, when we rely on our own righteousness, our hope is dependent on what? Us. Can you imagine? You want to put your eternal destiny in your own hands? But that's what we do. And it's only the strength of our works. 
I've told you this many times, and I, I feel I repeat it, but I have to say it because I feel the force of it when we go through a book of Galatians. Having a Roman Catholic background like I do, I've been at so many funerals at a Catholic Mass where I've heard the priest say, Holy Father, we hope that their righteousness is enough. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine that? People, the room is crying in a sea of tears. I hope that their righteousness was enough. That's not hope. That's horror. And praise God, Westmount, this is why it means so much to us. We have hope in the certainty of Jesus Christ. Him and Him alone, I have nothing, nor do I want to bring anything to my eternal destiny. Because it would be a mess. Beyond heartbreaking, let me ask you something of that vignette. Is that freedom? Is that freedom? To come to the end of your life and hope that your works were enough? The strength of our works is what? Bankruptcy. It's bankruptcy. Remember Isaiah 64.6. All our righteous deeds, those done in our efforts, listen, Isaiah 64.6, all of them, God says, are like what? A polluted garment. And you know, in Isaiah 64, you get that word righteous. How many of us submit deeds that we think are so noble and so righteous? Again, not to pick on myself today, but I will one last time. I did this all the time. As an unbeliever, I did this in spades. And I felt so good when I helped that lady fill her trunk at the grocery store. I did good. Right? But it's pollution to God. It's pollution. Because it's self-serving and it says, I did that. I took time out of my licentiousness and sin to do this thing. And really, it's a pollution to God. So the text says in Isaiah 64. In other words, Galatians, if you turn to circumcision, you're no different. If you turn to your work, you are enslaving yourself to a false hope, to a road that does not end well. You hear this today too. What? All roads lead to Rome. It doesn't matter how you do it. We're all getting there in the end, and that's freedom. Choose your own adventure to eternity. Wow. Yes, church, that's not the character of true freedom. No, the character of our freedom in Christ comes from a very different place. And it is not about all these roads. And mark it, it is only about one way. I can give you tons of verses right now. Jesus saying that crystal clear. There is only one way. Not like the variety that's posited as freedom today. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what counts? Look, only faith working through love. First note the location, in Christ Jesus. So for those in Christ, those truly his in Christ, look at it, neither circumcision or even uncircumcision count for anything. In other words, any work, circumcision or otherwise, does not count for anything. And that's right, church. No work of yours, no work of mine, no work of anyone's will ever earn saving marks with God. Ever. Only the work of Christ, his all-sufficient work. You're either, when you die, trusting in what you've done and hope that the scales tip, although that's a fable, or you're putting it all in Christ. Think about it. That's the fool's gambit, right? I mean, that's all you're doing. It's either you and you did enough and you hope that your righteousness is enough, or it's all Christ. That's it. That's it when you die. 
However, when we think about these works, people then, and this sets us up as we close for the rest of this chapter, it doesn't mean that works have no place in the Christian life. Again, we now turn the corner, and I pray the gospel is clear. Paul says, look at the end of verse 6, and this is so important, and we'll be here now for the rest of this letter. Only faith working through love. Paul says, catch it, something does count in Christ. Faith working through love. And track with me, Westmount, as we close. It means two things. Just look at those words, and they mean two things. One, work is not separate to a life in Christ. But here we're told work is a part of it. Okay, that's one. And two, that work is a result of being in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Work is a result of being in him. And don't miss that order. In other words, let me make this clear. Works didn't get you in Christ. But works are a product of being in Christ. Does that make sense? Works didn't get you in there. They never will. But works demonstrate that you're genuinely in there. And that reality is why we don't refer to it as work. In the church, we refer to it as what? Fruit. It's a great word, isn't it? Because it gives you that picture. If I can say it this way, to push that illustration, the apple is not the reason it became an apple tree. You don't look at the apple and say, well, that's the cause of it. No, but the apple demonstrates what? That it is an apple tree. You see that? That's the same with your fruit in the Christian life. This sets us up for the great balancer here in chapter 5. And this is the rebuttal to the antinomian, to those against law and standard. In fact, this faith working through love is the character of our freedom in Christ. That's what freedom is. That's what freedom is. And Paul will unpack that beauty just a few verses down. However, we will not get there today, nor will we get to the rest of our passage today. We're going to have to pick it up, but I pray this is profitable. And continue our look at freedom in Christ next time. Let's pray.